Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group. We're in volume 10, chapters 21 through 30. The way that we do this study group is I invite students in Zoom to be able to read a chapter from the book. Then I will share some teachings on that chapter and then open up to any and all questions that you guys might have. If there's nobody in Zoom who volunteers, then I typically will go ahead and read the chapter, share teachings on that chapter, and then open up to all the questions that you guys have. If you would like to ask a question and you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can put that into the comments section and I'll be able to see that here and answer your question during the class. And if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. We're studying the words of the Buddha through the Words of the Buddha book series. This is a 13-book book series that will help you to learn the path to enlightenment through the original words of the Buddha. The first volume helps you to develop a really nice foundation, and then the volumes 2 through 13 will kind of provide this filling in of this framework that you might develop through learning first through volume one, developing a framework, then volumes two through 13 will fill in this framework and help you more readily be able to understand the path to enlightenment so that you can learn it, you can reflect on it, and then you can practice it and start experiencing the results. The learning part is what you're doing in class with the teacher where you're investigating and examining the teachings. You can also be doing this on your own through reading and through understanding the teachings of the Buddha through videos and podcasts and things like this. You start to learn the teachings of the Buddha. Then you reflect on those to independently verify them. Rather than believing the teachings, you reflect on them to independently verify that they're true. And then you practice the teachings. And this is where the real transformation is happening in the mind and you're uprooting any pollutions that exist in the mind so that now you can start experiencing more of the brightness and radiance of the enlightened mind where the peacefulness and joy start shining through and you can experience the focus, concentration, clarity of mind and deep memory. You can notice your personal professional relationships really blossom. You'll get to a point where there's not even the slightest displeasure or annoyance or even a bad mood in the actual mind. You can get to a point where there's no struggles or difficulties in life because you fully have the wisdom of how to conduct your life based on the natural laws of existence and your mind no longer struggles anymore trying to find this wisdom because you've already acquired it. So we're going to start here with chapter 21. And as I mentioned, anybody in Zoom that would like to read, you're welcome to do that. Otherwise, I'll just go ahead and read. This first chapter, 21, is titled, The Suitable Way for Attaining Nibbana, or Enlightenment, Third Discourse. Monks, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana, Enlightenment. Listen to that and attend closely. I will speak. 
And what, monks, is the way that is suitable for attaining nibbana or enlightenment? Here, a monk sees the I as non-self. He sees forms as non-self. He sees eye consciousness as non-self. He sees eye contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the ear as non-self. He sees sounds as non-self. He sees ear consciousness as non-self. He sees ear contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with ear contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the nose as non-self. He sees odors as non-self. He sees nose consciousness as non-self. He sees nose contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with nose contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the tongue as non-self. He sees flavors as non-self. He sees tongue consciousness as non-self. He sees tongue contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with tongue contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the body as non-self. He sees physical objects as non-self. He sees body consciousness as non-self. He sees body contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with body contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees mind as non-self. He sees mental objects as non-self. He sees mind consciousness as non-self. He sees mind contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant. This, monks, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana, enlightenment. So the Buddha here is honing in on the universal truth of non-self. The first discourse and second discourse, which we studied last week, were honing in on the first universal truth of impermanence and the second universal truth of discontentedness. And here he's talking about non-self, which is the third universal truth. There's some learning that you would need to have done before getting to this point to understand what he's talking about here. One thing is you would need to know about central desire. This is a fetter or a taint or a pollution in the mind where the mind is longing and yearning with craving desire attachment through the six sense bases, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the body, and the mind itself. That the mind is longing through these in order to experience contact, in order to get that pleasant feeling. So the mind with central desire is wanting this contact to be permanently agreeable. So there's these six sense bases of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And then these particular things are then longing and yearning for forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects. And when the eye sees a physical form, then the mind becomes aware of it. This is called eye consciousness. And then the three of these things we refer to as eye contact. So there's the eye, there's forms, there's eye consciousness, which is the awareness of what the eye is seeing. And then this is called contact. 
the Buddha is explaining that none of those things are the self, meaning they aren't who you are as a person, including the feelings that arise. So if there's any conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant that arise, those feelings aren't you either. So the Buddha is helping you to disassociate with this body or this mind as being who you are, anything that you come in contact with, being able to see that it is impermanent, that it, you're going to experience discontentedness if you crave for it to be permanent, and then that these things aren't you, it's not who you are. Sometimes someone might say, you know, I am hungry or I am thirsty, but there's no I there. Or you might say, I am angry or I am frustrated. But I am not angry because there's no I there. The mind can be angry, the mind can be frustrated, or the body can be thirsty, or the body can be hungry. But if you understand and realize non-self, then you realize it's not possible for I to be hungry or I am hungry because there's no I here. And it's not possible for I to be angry, I am angry, because there's no I here. It's just the mind experiencing these feelings based on the craving, desire, attachment. So once you have contact through the six sense spaces, if there's craving in the mind, then there will be discontentedness that arises, either conditioned pleasant feelings like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria, or painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, or neither painful nor pleasant feelings like shyness or displeasure or uncomfortableness. These conditioned feelings are arising based on having contact through the six sense bases. And once there's contact, there's craving in the mind of the unenlightened mind, and you see things as agreeable or disagreeable. And if you experience agreeable contact, you might experience these conditioned pleasant feelings. But if you experience disagreeable contact based on your cravings, now you'll experience painful feelings. And this is what the mind's doing in the unenlightened state. And the Buddha is saying that none of this is you. It's not who you are. This will help you to disassociate with these things and considering them yourself. Because if you think that I am angry, meaning you think that you are one of these painful feelings, now you hold on to that thinking that I am angry, not realizing that it's just anger that is being experienced in the mind based on certain causes and conditions. And when you understand what those causes and conditions are, then you can uproot those and eliminate them from the mind so that then you don't experience those discontent feelings anymore. That's what this path is all about, seeing this cause and effect or action and result, the results of your decisions, by allowing craving to continue to exist in the mind, you will then experience these conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant feelings. But you can get beyond this in the enlightened mind where you're experiencing the unconditioned happiness or the unconditioned joy that is just always there and always present. So let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. This is chapter 21 in volume 10, titled The Suitable Way for Attaining Nibbana. All right, Francis, you have a question? Yes, I do have a question uh, related to the unconditioned uh, pleasant feeling. Uh, lately, I've been uh, practicing the uh, elimination of the uh, ill will and uh, harsh, harshness and talking to people. Uh, 
the next the next few days i felt uh, a lot of gladness in my mind uh, i feel at ease with myself i'm not so easily irritated by a lot of things that i used to so now this is considered an unconditioned pleasant feeling i just feel it the gladness so am i hanging on to it every because uh, i don't think about it every time it just come to me and i feel i feel good it come to me and i feel glad so it did part of being uh, hanging on to these uh, unconditioned pleasant feelings? I wouldn't refer to them as unconditioned pleasant feelings because a feeling is conditioned. When you have a feeling, then there's a condition that's causing that feeling. And that's ex explained in the Four Noble Truths. It's explained in Dependent Origination and other teachings as well, where there's these causes and conditions that lead to this conditioned feeling. What I would describe you're experiencing based on what you're sharing with me are unconditioned mental qualities. This gladness that you're experiencing is an unconditioned mental quality. That it's not glad because it's sunny. It's not glad because you got a new car. It's not glad because of your bank account. It's just glad for the sake of being glad. There's no condition that's causing it. This is an unconditioned mental quality. And these qualities can be permanent, but until they're permanent, they're gonna come and go. But there's still these unconditioned mental qualities that it's kind of like it gets turned on and you experience it for a few hours or a few days or a few weeks. And then because your mind's not fully enlightened yet, it's not completely purified, that unconditioned gladness will just go away. It's like a light bulb going out. And then there'll be this discontentedness that arises based on some craving, desire, attachment you have. But when you eliminate more and more of these craving, desires, attachments, the amount of time that you're experiencing these unconditioned mental qualities becomes longer and longer and longer. You can even get to a point where you're experiencing unconditioned joy and unconditioned happiness or gladness for three months, even six months, and then boom, there's this little bit of discontentedness. It's not very significant. It doesn't last very long. It's kind of like a little bit of ickiness. You'll know exactly what's causing it because you'll know and be understanding of craving, desire, attachment very well by that point but you can go three months six months sometimes where this unconditioned gladness or joy or happiness this peacefulness this calmness and serenity is in the mind and then you can experience a little bit of discontentedness and then you extinguish that craving and now you might get a year or so so by the time you get to a year two years three years of no discontentedness you'll know the mind is enlightened but these unconditioned mental qualities they come and go and they are impermanent until your mind is enlightened, but these are unconditioned because they're not based on any condition. And you'll get these windows of time that you'll notice these unconditioned mental qualities. Okay, so that means I uh, don't think of them as a, uh, or think of them as a mental condition uh, due to my elimination of the fetters and all that. A mental yeah, quality, a mental quality, for instance. It can't come back to me again, uh, the mm. craving desire, and uh, so I already uh, was able to be aware of it and quickly cut it off and all that, uh, and uh, bring up some of the uh, uh, enlightenment factors uh, just to, yeah, just to stay, get away from all this uh, craving desire attachment. So it's a, something? it's a mental quality, not a mental condition. When you're talking about a, con oh, when you're talking about a condition, there's a cause 
or a condition that is causing that conditioned feeling. What you're looking to get to is the purity of the mind, these unconditioned mental qualities where there doesn't need to be any condition met in order to experience this quality of mind. So as soon as you put the word condition in there, that is the temporary nature of these conditioned feelings where the mind goes up and down. So when you notice that these conditioned feelings are arising, then you'd like to investigate whether there's what is the craving desire attachment that is causing that. Since you are also attending the group learning program, over the next two weeks, tomorrow and the next Sunday, I'm going to take you beyond just the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the things you've been learning so far. And I'm going to teach you how to identify your cravings, desires, attachments specifically because you're experiencing things, but you haven't quite learned what you need to do yet 100%. So this is great that you're experiencing these things, but when you're experiencing those conditioned feelings of discontentedness, you would like to peer into it and identify what are the cravings that are causing it so then you can eliminate it. And that's what's going to ultimately get you more and more unconditioned joy and happiness and peace and all those other unconditioned mental qualities of the enlightened mind. Okay, got it. Thank you so much. Okay, it looks like Mayu Lee has a question here. Going back to the answer that you provided, Francis, if you are glad because you notice that you are improving your mental quality, is that a conditioned or unconditioned? That is conditioned. This is a question that was just asked in the Facebook group as well by a student named Jared. If you go and look at the answer I replied there, what can sometimes be experienced is you start noticing this unconditioned gladness. You start noticing this unconditioned happiness and joy. You start noticing this unconditioned peacefulness. Essentially, the qualities of the enlightened mind start shining through. And these are unconditioned mental qualities. And now you can get happy or excited because of that. And that is a conditioned feeling now, that you've now formed a conditioned feeling. And because that unconditioned gladness or joy or happiness is not yet permanent, because there's still pollution in the mind, it will go away. And now you're left with this conditioned pleasant feeling that you now need to cut off and let go of. So when you're experiencing these mental qualities of peace, calmness, serenity, and contentedness with joy, this unconditioned happiness arising, you need to remain with equanimity, with calmness and composure, not allowing the mind to form a conditioned feeling based on, oh my goodness, look at these qualities of enlightenment shining through. Wow, I'm getting there. I'm almost there. Wow, look at this. Oh, now you got a conditioned feeling. Your mind's going to regress. Your mind's going to retreat from that. It's going to pull back. So you need to reside with equanimity where when you see those unconditioned mental qualities coming in, it's kind of like, yep, I see you. Okay. The teachings of the Buddha lead exactly where he said they do. Okay, let me keep walking. And you just notice that they're there, but you don't allow the mind to get all excited and happy about it. That you just sit with those feelings or go forward in your life, or not with the feelings, but with the mental qualities. You just go forward in life. You just know like, okay, the mind is doing exactly what the Buddha said, exactly what David said. I'm experiencing these things that David mentioned, but don't get all excited and happy about them because that would be a conditioned feeling that now you have to eliminate the craving for enlightenment. You need to eliminate the craving 
for these unconditioned mental qualities because now the mind is craving, desiring, attached to them and you need to eliminate the wanting of those things and just realize like, okay, they're there. That's interesting. Wow. Okay, let's keep walking forward today. Great question there, Mayuli. And you'll see more of my answer on Facebook through Jared's question that I answered. Francis is following this up here. He says, so we just notice them, not get excited about those mental qualities. Exactly. Exactly. As soon as you allow the mind to get excited about something, that is the conditioned feeling. And you would like to not allow the mind to do that because now when that something changes, you're going to be left with the painful feelings. So these unconditioned mental qualities are going to start peering through for again a couple of minutes couple of hours couple of days couple of weeks ultimately you'll get to a few months they're going to start peering through more and more and if you form a pleasant feeling based on that now that's a conditioned feeling and because these unconditioned mental qualities are not yet permanent in the mind because there's still this pollution these unconditioned mental qualities are impermanent in the mind they're going to go away at different times so if you form a conditioned feeling based on that condition that you have these unconditioned mental qualities when those unconditioned mental qualities go away now you're going to be left with painful feelings and feeling unwell because of that so don't allow the mind to form any kind of conditioned feeling about anything including those qualities of enlightenment that are shining through Okay, I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. So we'll go on to the next chapter, which is chapter 22. The suitable way for attaining Nibbana, enlightenment, fourth discourse. Monks, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana, enlightenment. Listen to that and attend closely. I will speak. What do you think, monks? Is the eye permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent discontentedness or contentedness? Discontentedness, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent discontentedness and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir. Are forms permanent or impermanent? Is eye consciousness permanent or impermanent? Is eye contact permanent or impermanent? Is any feeling that arises with eye contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is the ear permanent or impermanent? Is the nose permanent or impermanent? Is the tongue permanent or impermanent? Is the body permanent or impermanent? Is the mind permanent or impermanent? Is any feeling that arises with ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact, mind contact as condition, permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent discontentedness or contentedness? Discontentedness, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent discontentedness and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself? No, venerable sir. Seeing thus, monks, the instructed noble disciple experiences a fading away of strong feelings towards the eye, towards forms, a fading away of strong feelings towards eye consciousness, a fading away of strong feelings towards eye contact, a fading away of strong feelings towards whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, 
whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. All the below were restated as above. He experiences a fading away of strong feelings towards the ears, towards the nose, towards the tongue, towards the body, towards the mind, towards whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. Experiencing a fading away of strong feelings, he becomes free from strong feelings. Through freedom from strong feelings, his mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge, it's liberated. He understands, destroyed is birth, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more for this state of existence. This, monks, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana, enlightenment. So what this discourse does is it actually ties together the first, second, and third discourses all in one discourse. And the Buddha is actually using questioning here in order to question the students because this is one of the ways to teach is rather than just broadcasting, you ask your students questions to see how they reply. And then through their reply, they're confirming in their mind what the wisdom is that they have understood. And it also confirms for the teacher where their students are, that they can then kind of check in with the students to understand. So the Buddha does this throughout his teachings where he will ask his students questions. And of course, the students ask him questions too. So here he's saying, what do you think, monks? Is the I permanent or impermanent? So of course they answer, impermanent, venerable sir. So this is what the Buddha is teaching and this is what the monks reply and it's obviously the correct answer, but you should independently reflect on that and decide for yourself. Is the I permanent or impermanent? You need to be able to see the wisdom that it is impermanent. Don't just accept this. Don't just adopt this. Don't just believe in it, but see the wisdom in it for yourself. Then is what is impermanent discontentedness or contentedness? Because if you have craving in the mind and there's an experience where the mind is now experiencing impermanence, is it going to produce discontentedness or contentedness? Well, it's going to produce discontentedness, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent in discontentedness subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, or this is myself. In other words, is what is impermanent? What is discontentedness? Is this yourself? Is this who you are? These impermanent things, the body, the mind, and all these other objects around you, is that who you are? No, venerable sir. Is this discontentedness you experience? The pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. Is this who you are? Is this mine? Is this the self? No, venerable sir. So all these things that are subject to change and all these discontent feelings, this isn't you? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what they're saying. So none of that stuff is the self. And then the Buddha goes through forms, goes through eye consciousness, eye contact, any feeling that arises, and it's all the six sense spaces. Are these things permanent or impermanent? All these things are impermanent. Is the ear itself or the nose itself or any of these other six sense spaces, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, the body, or the mind, are they permanent or impermanent? Is the contact that you experience through these sense spaces, is it permanent or impermanent? It's impermanent, venerable sir. And this is really important that you see these things as impermanent because 
what the unenlightened mind is doing is it's craving permanence because it has this confusion it has this misunderstanding it has this misperception it has this unknowing of true reality this ignorance or this delusion and what you're trying to do is arise the wisdom and be able to see this more and more clearly so that when you see the mind chasing after something that you already know like why am i chasing this impermanent thing it's not going to provide any lasting satisfaction. It's not going to provide permanent joy or permanent peacefulness. So why would I keep chasing this impermanent thing that the mind's chasing? Because if you keep chasing that impermanence, is what is impermanent discontentedness or contentedness? Well, it's going to lead to discontentedness if you keep chasing those impermanent things. So you need to be willing to let go of the temporary pleasant feelings in order to get to the permanent joy or the permanent happiness. Is what is impermanent discontentedness and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir, none of these things, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, the body, the mind, none of these things are you. It's not who you are. And you'll need to be able to see that more and more clearly. And then this instructed noble disciple, if somebody understands these things and you're practicing these things, then you're going to experience a fading away of strong feelings towards the eye in forms. So now the things that you see where once you were chasing after that brand new pair of shoes, you were chasing after that beautiful man or beautiful woman, you were chasing after that beautiful car, that bigger house, more money. Instead of chasing after these things, you know that these things are impermanent. So why keep chasing after? So you feel this fading away of these strong feelings towards these things and you no longer chase them. Instead, you just pursue things as a goal, an objective or interest rather than chasing them, thinking they're going to provide some kind of lasting satisfaction or some kind of fulfillment. So now when you experience this fading away of strong feelings through the six sense spaces, now experiencing that fading away of the strong feelings, you then become free of strong feelings. This is the transitioning that you experience, that at one time you were off the path, chasing things through craving, desire, attachment. Now you're on the path, you're training your mind, you experience this fading away, this gradual fading away over time. And then eventually you get to the point where the mind becomes completely free of these strong feelings, of those conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. In becoming free of those strong feelings, now the mind is liberated, meaning it's enlightened, it's free. You no longer can the mind be shaken up. It's stable, it's steady. It's not being shaken up anymore. When the mind's liberated or enlightened, you know that it's liberated. There comes the knowledge, yeah, you know it's liberated because it's been one year, two years, three years. You haven't experienced any discontentedness, nothing but peace and joy in your life. There's no struggles, there's no difficulties. Everything is at ease, everything's cool, everything's peaceful. And then having gotten to enlightenment, then you will understand destroyed is birth. You're no longer going to experience continuous rebirth because you've eliminated the causes and conditions that lead to discontentedness, which is namely craving, anger, and ignorance. And having eliminated those craving, anger, and ignorance, it's craving that leads to rebirth. That's the cause and condition that not only leads to discontentedness, but it leads to rebirth too. So you'll know that you're never going to experience another existence in the cycle of rebirth. So you'll know that because you'll see that the mind has been 
reaching has reached this complete liberation and this peacefulness you'll know that you've lived this holy life that you're completely cultivated the wisdom and you're living this holy life where there's no calamity around you everything's at peace everything's calm serene what had to be done has been done you've applied the diligence you've applied the dedication the determination you did what you needed to do you learned the teachings you reflected on them and you practiced them lots of meditation lots of learning you've now attained what's called final knowledge where you fully understand the path to enlightenment and you fully implemented it in your life and you've completely purified the mind what had to be done had to be done and then you'll know there's no more for this state of existence you've learned everything you need to learn here in this world you're not holding on to this world anymore you've escaped the cycle of rebirth this is your last life when you die or when the body and the mind break up you will experience the complete liberation where you'll experience final enlightenment the buddha doesn't explain once you attain enlightenment what comes next after that but you definitely won't be experiencing a further existence in the cycle of rebirth so that's how one slowly gets to enlightenment and of course it's the full path it's meditation it's practicing generosity and mindfulness and all these other teachings developing loving kindness compassion sympathetic joy equanimity all these different things it's not just this discourse that you would need to learn any questions on anything that's shared here you can put that into facebook youtube or zoom or you can raise your hand in zoom and ask any questions you like okay it looks like biplop has a question here sir is it wise to avoid to depend on contact in order to avoid a resin pleasant feeling or unpleasant feelings i'm not sure what you're sharing there bit blabber asking is it wise to avoid to dependent on contact in order to avoid arisen pleasant or unpleasant feelings let me share with you what i think is the answer here but if i haven't understood your question let me know so when you have craving desire attachment in the mind and now there's some contact through the six sense spaces now discontentedness is going to start to arise there's either going to be a condition pleasant feeling painful feeling neither painful nor pleasant and when that's occurring you're going to first experience bodily sensations which you should cut off and let go of there if you don't cut it off there it's going to become a feeling in the mind which now the condition feeling is now in the mind if you don't cut it off there it's going to affect the condition of your mind for several hours days or maybe a week or so then it's going to feed these mental objects so you would like to cut it off as a bodily sensation and one of the ways to do that is to redirect the mind you eliminate contact so if there's contact coming through the eyes or the ears or the nose or the tongue the body or the mind because there needs to be contact in order for discontentedness to arise based on a craving in your mind if you restrain the mind and pull it back you're redirecting the mind somewhere else and now you're eliminating contact because there's no contact there won't be any discontentedness so say you're walking down the street and you see a mother holding the hand of their child and you get all these pleasant feelings and you start noticing the bodily sensations arising what i would encourage you to do is redirect the mind look somewhere else even though that's a really wonderful thing and someday you will be able to look at that and not get the condition pleasant feelings right now at that particular time you've got a craving in your mind it's a rising 
conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, and it's best to break contact and look somewhere else. And then the same thing is true is if you turn the corner and you see a parent slap their child across the face and you're noticing the painful feeling starting to arise, you would like to redirect the mind and look somewhere else and cut that off, restraining the mind, eliminating contact so that you can now restrain the mind. And over time, you eliminate the cravings that are in the mind. And now your mind can reside calm and peaceful and joyful despite what's going on around you. You can get to that unconditioned mental quality. And there's other situations like this, other examples that we could describe. Like if you're walking in the mall, you see a brand new pair of shoes and you notice that the conditioned pleasant feelings are starting to arise. You would like to redirect the mind, break contact, walk in the opposite direction, go on the escalator, go somewhere else, break contact. Or say you go in the store and you ask for the pair of shoes and they don't have your shoes and you notice the frustration starting to arise. You notice the bodily sensation, break contact, you know, say thank you so much and just walk out of the store. Don't allow the mind to stay there in that experience, continuing to experience contact because now because of the craving in the mind with this contact through the six sense bases, the discontentedness is going to come into the mind. And now the mind continues to stay wired to have these conditioned feelings. If you can break contact, you're also breaking the ability for the mind to now experience that conditioned feeling. You're essentially rewiring the mind. You're training the mind to no longer form this conditioned feeling. So I'm not sure if I explain an answer to your question, but what I just shared will definitely help all of you guys to understand what to do when you're noticing discontentedness starting to arise as a bodily sensation, or even if it becomes a feeling, you can accomplish the same things. Okay, I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. And Biplob, if there's something that I didn't answer that you would like to penetrate into more, just feel free to ask a follow-up question. This is chapter 23. It's titled, Disassociation Will Lead to Your Welfare and Peacefulness. Monks, whatever is not yours, disassociate with it. When you have disassociated with it, that will lead to your welfare and peacefulness. And what is it, monks, that is not yours? The I is not yours. Disassociate with it. When you have disassociated with it, that will lead to your welfare and peacefulness. In the case of the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind, the discourses are similar to that of the eye. Suppose, monks, people were to carry off the grass, sticks, branches, and foliage in this jetty's grove, or to burn them, or to do with them as they wish. What do you think? People are carrying us off, or burning us, or doing with us as they wish? No, venerable sir. For what reason? Because, venerable sir, that is neither ourself nor what belongs to ourself. So too, monks, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind is not yours. Disassociate with it. When you have disassociated with it, that will lead to your welfare and peacefulness. Okay, so this is helping you to realize non-self, what the Buddha is sharing with you here. What he's sharing with you is none of these things are yours. Nothing belongs to you truly. Those clothes that you're wearing, those aren't yours. They don't belong to you. You're essentially just renting them. 
you maybe went to the store and you either purchased them or somebody gave them to you, but they're temporary, they're impermanent. So disassociate with it. Don't think of it as these are my clothes or that mobile phone or that computer or that iPad. It's not my phone or my computer or my iPad or my tablet. These things don't belong to you. They're impermanent. They're only gonna be in your life impermanently. They're gonna come and go. Whereas if your mind clings to these things, thinking that these are yours and they belong to you. Now, when impermanence occurs, maybe your clothes get ripped, maybe they get lost, maybe they get eaten up in the dryer or the washer, maybe you lose your phone, you misplace your phone, maybe it gets stolen or something like this, you're gonna be discontent in these situations. So you'll need to make wise decisions around these things to use them and use them for your benefit, but over time, they are impermanent. They're gonna fade away, they're not going to be uh, with you permanently. So if you can disassociate with them and no longer think of it as my phone, but instead it's the phone, or instead of my computer, it's the computer. Instead of my house, it's the house. This is the place where you live, right? Instead of my car, it's the car. And if you start thinking that way in, within your own mind, and maybe even speaking that way in some situations, it will help you to disassociate with all these things being mine, 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 mine. My food, my money, my clothes, my job, my wife, my son, my parents, mine, 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 mine. That's what the mind does when there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind. And the Buddha is giving this analogy to help people during his lifetime see that these things aren't mine, they don't belong to you. So this Jetty's Grove that he's talking about, this is a place where the Buddha used to teach. It was essentially a park and they would sit out there and the Buddha would teach them. And they spent a lot of time there. So it would be very likely that these students might have adopted the thought or the perception that this Jetty's Grove or this park is mine and it belongs to me. So the Buddha says, if people came and carried off the grass, the sticks, the branches, and the foliage, or they burned them, or they did with them as they wish, are they carrying us off? Are they burning us? Are they doing with us as they wish? And the student's like, no, they're not. Well, why? Because these, this Jetty's Grove, this park, these branches and sticks and grass and foliage, this isn't us, this isn't who we are. And the same thing is true about all these things like the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And anything that the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind comes in contact with, this isn't you either. So you can disassociate with it, and this will lead to your welfare and peacefulness because you will have eliminated your craving and clinging to any of the six sense bases and anything that the six sense bases come in contact with. And then as you experience impermanence with all these things, if you don't see it as mine and it belongs to you, then you can reside peaceful and joyful. So it's a matter of practicing the middle way where you don't crave and cling and hold on to these objects, but you also aren't indifferent when you just throw your phone around and break it up because obviously you worked hard to be able to acquire this phone and it provides you a certain service. So if you are craving and you are clinging and holding on to it, you're gonna be discontent when it experiences impermanence. But also if you didn't care for it and you didn't take care of it, then you'd be constantly having to buy a new phone and then you would 
have to work, 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 spend all this money in order to acquire a new phone. And that's not wise either. That's where the mind's on the opposite side of the spectrum. It's not craving and holding on to it. It's so indifferent and so lackadaisical about it that it's not caring for this particular thing. So you'd like to come to the middle where you care for this particular thing. You maybe put a protective case on it. Maybe you clean it every once in a while. You put it in a nice place so that it's less likely to get broken or damaged. But understanding the whole time that this phone isn't permanent. It's not going to be with you permanently. So this is how you get to the elimination of craving and clinging to any particular object of things that you're experiencing through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, or the mind itself. Any questions that you guys have here? You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Okay, Biplop's confirming that he's got it. All right, one thing I would like to highlight here, I don't see any questions yet, is highlight about this, this sense base of the mind. Sometimes this is a more challenging one for people to understand. So you might understand the eye is longing for forms, the ear is longing for sounds, the nose is longing for odors, the tongue is longing for flavors, the body is longing for certain physical objects to touch the body. This is pretty straightforward for most people. Well, the mind has certain mental objects, certain thoughts, certain thinking, certain things that the mind is longing and yearning. Let's say here in this particular situation, let's say you've had something very pleasurable happening in the past. Like maybe you were very rich and very wealthy. And then now over time, impermanence has occurred and now you don't have very much resources. Well, if your mind is longing and yearning for this wealth that you once had in the present moment, you're longing and yearning for those pleasant experiences of having all this wealth. And now in the present moment, you're experiencing painful feelings because of something from the past. The mind is longing and yearning through the mind itself for this pleasurable experience. And now what the Buddha is saying is disassociate with that. That's not who you are. That richness, that wealth, that whatever you had before, that's not who you are. And then the same thing if you've had any traumatic experiences, painful things. Maybe you've been physically abused, mentally abused, sexually abused, or you had some other bitter or harsh thing that occurred in your life. And now maybe in the present moment, you thinking back to those experiences, those painful experiences. Now in the present moment, your mind clinging to those experiences, you're experiencing painful feelings in the present moment based on things from the past. You haven't had any contact through the eye, ear, nose, tongue, or body at this point in time in the present moment. All it is is the mind longing and yearning. It's holding on and clinging to this experience in the past. And now in the present moment, you're experiencing painful feelings. And what the Buddha is explaining here is to disassociate with that. That's not who you are. While you may have experienced those types of things, now you've made decisions to get far, far away from that. Don't continue to cling to those experiences thinking that that's who you are. Disassociate with it. And the same thing is true. The mind is doing this for the future, that there might be certain pleasurable things that the mind is longing, yearning for in the future, or certain painful things that you're afraid of, or you're having anxiety about, and you need to bring the mind into the present moment. No longer cling and crave for those types of things, because otherwise your mind's going to be discontent in the present moment based on longing, yearning for pleasant or painful things to occur or will occur in the future. So disassociate with all of those things, that that's not who you are. And now this will be 
very helpful for your welfare and peacefulness for a long time. So this is how you can start to understand the sense base of the mind. Okay, I'm not seeing any more questions, so we'll move on to the next one, which is chapter 24. This one is titled, The Arising and Elimination of Feeling. Monks, these three feelings are born of contact, rooted in contact, with contact as their source in condition. What three? Pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Independence on a contact to be experienced as pleasant. Monks, a pleasant feeling arises. With the elimination of that contact to be experienced as pleasant, the corresponding feeling, the pleasant feeling that arose in dependence on that contact to be experienced as pleasant is eliminated and subsides. In the case of painful feeling, neither painful nor pleasant feeling, similar discourses were spoken by the perfectly enlightened one. Monks, just as heat is generated and fire is produced from the conjunction and friction of two fire sticks, but when the sticks are separated and laid aside, the resulting heat is eliminated and subsides. So too, these three feelings are born of contact, rooted in contact, with contact as their source and condition. In dependence on the appropriate contacts, the corresponding feelings arise. With the elimination of the appropriate contacts, the corresponding feelings are eliminated. So here, this is what I was just describing to Biblob as redirecting the mind. When you eliminate contact, you eliminate the ability for the craving to arise. So with the eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body, you're maybe physically moving the mind to another place, physically moving the body, redirecting it. With the mind itself, when it's longing and yearning for the past or the future, you've got to internally cut that off and let that go. You also are internally cutting it off and letting it go when you're experiencing contact through the six sense bases. But with those first five of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body, you can physically redirect the body in its six sense bases along with the mind in a different direction. But if you're just laying in bed, for example, and you're thinking about the past or you're thinking about the future, there's no way for you to escape that other than to cut it off internally. So the sixth sense base is a little bit different. That's how you would eliminate the contact is by cutting it off internally. And that's why you're training with breathing mindfulness meditation to be able to cut off and let go of those arising thoughts so you can gain this discipline and control of the mind to be able to do this in your day-to-day -day life. So here the Buddha is explaining that and he's giving this great analogy of two sticks that are rubbing together in order to produce this friction and this fire. When you lay these two sticks aside, there's no contact with the sticks, so there's no fire that can result. And the same thing is true as if you come in contact with some object and you separate, then there can't be any discontentedness arising. So you need to be able to see that contact is a condition that leads to conditioned feelings. And there needs to be a craving in the mind because by the time you get to enlightenment, you're still going to have contact through the six sense bases, but there's no craving in the mind. So there won't be any discontentedness arising. But while you're in the process of doing that, oftentimes separating 
the sixth sense bases and moving in opposite direction or cutting off and letting go is what you need. So eventually you'll get to the point where you'll have contact through the sixth sense bases as an enlightened being, but the craving desire attachment is uprooted and eliminated. So there won't be any discontentedness. But in this time, if there's craving and desire, attachment, longing, yearning, clinging, expectations and wants and things like this in the mind, when there is contact, then discontentedness is going to arise. So that's why you'd like to restrain the mind. And now in those situations, restraining the mind, you'll eliminate more and more of the craving, desire, attachment. And over time, when you fully uproot it, then when you have contact in that same exact situation that you once would get angry or frustrated or irritable, you'll notice that with the same exact contact, there won't be any discontentedness because the craving's gone. Any questions on this one? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's move on to chapter 25. Here you see all the guidance that I'm providing to help you learn the words of the Buddha. Here, this one is titled, The Way to Purity. Of ways, the Eightfold Path is the best. And of true things, the stage is for. Freedom from strong feelings is the best of things. Of humans, best is he who sees. This is the very way. There is none else for seeing purity. Herein, do you a faring go. The way to baffle, Mara this. Herein, when you have faring gone, as end you'll come to make of ill. Shown surely as the way by me, who ease from darts had come to know. Tis you, the dedicated, must work. The men so gone but show the way. Who in their reflection, as they fare, from Mara's bonds find liberty? Transient is all men think and do. When this by wisdom is discerned, then does one turn away from ill. This is the way to purity. Painful is all men think and do. When this by wisdom is discerned, then does one turn away from ill. This is the way to purity. Without the self, men think and do. When this by wisdom is discerned, then does one turn away from ill. This is the way to purity. Okay, you can see here from the reference that this is from what's called the Dhammapada. The Dhammapada is part of the Pali Canon. There's actually three different parts of the Pali Canon. This collection of texts that we refer to as the Pali Canon, it contains the suttas or the discourses, which is what I'm typically sharing with you, which are the actual teachings of the Buddha. The Dhammapada is a scholarly work that comes about 1,000 to 1,200 years after the death of the Buddha, that these academics and researchers and scholars come together and they try to learn the teachings of the Buddha from the text, and then they try to summarize them in kind of like a poetic form like this. And some people consider these to be the words of the Buddha, but I don't consider them to be the words of the Buddha because it's a person who's read the teachings of the Buddha and now they're interpreting his teachings and they're writing them within this poetic verse form method. So the Buddha never actually spoke these words. 
these are other people that are assigning these words to the Buddha. And one of the things that you might understand about academics or researchers or scholars, they're typically interested in teachings like the Buddha from a historical standpoint, looking at it from an anthropologic standpoint of how have these teachings historically affected the development of humanity and looking at it more from anthropology as opposed to learning, investigating, examining, reflecting on the teachings, and then practicing the teachings to acquire and attain enlightenment. Scholars academics, researchers, anthropologists, they're not interested in enlightenment itself. They're more interested in the historical context of teachings like the Buddha and how they've affected humanity over time. So if a scholar is to just read the teachings of the Buddha and then try to summarize them, they're not actually having the deep, profound wisdom to be able to then understand the teachings. Because where your real wisdom comes from with the teachings of the Buddha is through your practice. There is a certain amount of wisdom or intellectual learning that needs to happen in order to acquire wisdom. There's a certain amount of reflection that needs to occur in order to acquire wisdom. But the ultimate wisdom that you acquire is through your practice. So because academics, researchers, scholars, anthropologists, historians, they're not interested in the practice part. They're not getting to the deep penetrating wisdom that an individual would get to if they were an actual practitioner. So what you're seeing here is this summary. And what I tend to do is I tend to share the discourses or the suttas, which are the actual spoken words of the Buddha that can be learned, reflected on to independently verified and practiced. Here, it's kind of challenging for the average person to understand what is being shared in the Dhammapada. But I share a couple of these throughout the book series because some of them are actually fairly accurate if you understand what they're actually trying to say. So what I've done in this particular chapter is I've explained to you here why I don't teach from the Dhammapada and how they're not the original words of the Buddha. That's the first part that I share here. But then what I do is I go verse by verse and I explain what the scholars are actually trying to communicate in a way that you can understand. So what they're actually saying here is, and what the Buddha would have said uh, along these lines, is the best way to enlightenment is the Eightfold Path. There are four stages of enlightenment. Liberation of the mind results in freedom from strong feelings, which is the best thing you could ever experience. Getting to that enlightened mental state is the best thing you could ever experience. He who has eliminated ignorance or the unknowing of true reality can see clearly, no longer confused about the natural laws of existence, is the best of all humans. They have completely purified the mind, no longer experiencing any unwholesome mental qualities, only experiencing wholesomeness. So even though the Buddha here is saying of humans, or at least the scholars are interpreting the Buddha to say, of humans best is he who sees, what the Buddha is actually saying is anybody who's cultivated the wisdom to get to enlightenment, this is like becoming a better and better human being. He's not saying that you're above other people because the Buddha wouldn't rank people or have a picking order like this. But he's saying when you were off the path to enlightenment, you weren't functioning as a really well-developed human being. In the unenlightened state, you function very much like an animal. But now having cultivated the wisdom on the Eightfold Path, you're functioning more and more like a better human being because you've eliminated this ignorance. You now are no longer confused about the natural laws of existence and you have become a better human being. That's what is essentially being communicated here. And the Buddha would have said things like that. 
when he refers to like an instructed noble disciple. And now this next verse, he says, uh, or at least the scholars are sharing here, and then I've kind of clarified it to be able to help you understand. The Eightfold Path is the way to enlightenment. There is no other way to purify the mind other than the Eightfold Path, where the mind will eliminate all ignorance, a knowing of true reality, being able to see true reality, seeing clearly. This is the way to go forward on the path to enlightenment, the way to eliminate the unwholesome influence of Mara, the evil one. So Mara is that formless being that is interested in causing calamity in the world, interested in seeing harmful and unwholesome things happening. And Mara is going to try to tempt beings to make unwise decisions. Ultimately, it's each individual being making certain decisions, but Mara is going to be there trying to tempt you and trying to lead you towards these unwise decisions to produce calamity and unwholesome things in the world. When you have gone forward on the Eightfold Path, you can eliminate all desire to cause harm. I have shown you the path to enlightenment through these teachings, where you will come to understand the ending of painful feelings. Then you must have dedication to do the work. Those who have eliminated discontentedness have attained enlightenment, will show the way to enlightenment. Through reflecting on the teachings to acquire wisdom as they walk forward, they will experience liberation of mind, freedom from strong feelings, and escape the bonds of Mara, the evil one. All that human beings think and do is impermanent. Understanding the wisdom of the universal truth of impermanence that is when one can turn away from harming others to practice harmlessness. This is the way to purify the mind through understanding the universal truth of impermanence. This is the very first teaching on the path to enlightenment that you would need to understand the universal truth of impermanence. All unenlightened human beings experience painful feelings. Understanding the wisdom of the universal truth of discontentedness that is when one can turn away from harming others to practice harmlessness. This is the way to purify the mind through understanding the universal truth of discontentedness. So this is the second teaching that you would learn on your journey to enlightenment. All that human beings think and do is not the self, as there is no permanent self. Understanding the wisdom of the universal truth of non-self, that is when one can turn away from harming others, to practice harmlessness. This is the way to purify the mind through understanding the universal truth of non-self. So that's the third teaching that you need to understand to really get on the path to enlightenment and now move into the Four Noble Truths. So this is what the scholars are really trying to say, but they're saying it in a poetic form because that's the way that the Dhammapada is written. And as you come across these things, you'll understand that the Buddha didn't speak in poetic terms. He spoke very clear, very concise, and very precise. There's very rare occasions where he might have used a little bit of kind of poetic verses, but you can see that, that it's part of the suttas and the discourses. And there's usually him talking ahead of time where he's kind of leading up to it. And then he'll say a little bit of poetry, and then he'll kind of end with a little bit of kind of real clear, straight talk. But when you see something like this that's just complete poetry, you'll know that it's not the Buddha because a Buddha speaks very clear, very concise, and very precise. 
but there is sometimes things that you can learn from these things and it makes it kind of fun and interesting to be able to penetrate into these things and explore them. So let me know if you guys have any questions on anything I shared here. Okay, so Mayu Lee has a question here. Sir, is Mara afflicted spirit? Mara is a being that oversees the hell realm and the afflicted spirit realm, much like we might consider God to kind of oversee the uh, heavenly realm. God is a being within the heavenly realm. Mara is a being within the hell realm. And Mara is the most powerful being in the hell realm and in the afflicted spirit realm. So it's, I don't think of Mara as an afflicted spirit. I think of Mara as a being within the hell realm who oversees that realm is very, very powerful and also the afflicted spirit realm. And now these beings in the realm of hell and afflicted spirit work on Mara's behalf in trying to tempt people and lure people to do unwholesome and unwise things. Okay, so now we'll move on to the next one since there's no more questions. All right, so here, this is chapter 26. This is the Noble Eightfold Path. And here, I typically teach this in all of our foundational programs, the group learning program, the foundation in the Path to Enlightenment course, and all the other courses and retreats that I teach. I will teach the Eightfold Path because it takes a good two and a half hours for me to thoroughly teach the Eightfold Path. But when we come across this in the Pali Canon and English Study Group, I just see if you guys have any questions on any of the steps here. Because typically people who are studying in the Pali Canon and English Study Group, they've already studied the foundational programs and other uh, courses and retreats that I teach. So I've already shared this with you perhaps at some point. So if you have any questions on any aspect of the full path that you're trying to dial in closer and closer, now would be an ideal time for you to ask those questions. So you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically ask your questions through raising your hand in Zoom. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 27. This one is titled, Reflection on Every Step Can Be Liberation to Nibbana, Enlightenment. Certainly, monks, I say, fetter destruction or taints depends on the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana, the sphere of infinite space, the sphere of infinite consciousness, the sphere of nothingness, the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, the ending of perception and feeling. Monks, it is said, I say so fetter destruction depends on the first jhana. And for what reason is this said? Consider the monk who, distant from sense desires, distant from evil ideas, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy. Whatever occurs there of form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, choices and decisions, or consciousness, he sees wholly as impermanent objects, as discontentedness, as a disease, as a boil, a sting, a hurt, an affliction, as something alien, inferior, empty, not the self. He turns his mind away from such objects and, having done so, brings the mind towards the death, deathless element, enlightenment, with the thought, 
This is the peace. This is the summit. Just this, the stilling of the mind activity, the renouncing of all rebirth, the destroying of craving, calm, ending the cool. And steadfast herein, he wins to fetter destruction. If not wins to fetter destruction, just by reason of that teaching energy, that teaching sweetness, he snaps the five lower fetters and, being not subject to return from that world, the heavenly world or heavenly realm, becomes completely cool there. Monks, suppose an archer or his student were to practice on a straw man or heap of clay. Presently, he would become a long shot, a rapid shot, a piercer of great thicknesses. Even so, monks, the monk who is distant from sense desires is distant from evil ideas, enters and resides in the first jhana, wherein applied and sustained thought works, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy. Certainly, monks, it is said, I say fetter destruction depends on the first jhana, and it is for this reason that it is said. In the case of fetter destruction depending on the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana, the perfectly enlightened one spoke similarly to that of the first jhana. So I'm going to pause here and help you guys understand what's being shared so far. What the Buddha is saying is that in order to eliminate the fetters, those 10 individual pollutions that are in the mind, the defilements, the taints, that one would need to attain the first, second, third, and fourth jhana because that is the way that you get up to the first stage of enlightenment. These are preliminary phases that the mind goes through and that you experience as you're putting together the Eightfold Path and you're developing that and dialing it in closer and closer. You're going to experience these improved qualities of mind where the mind enters and resides in the first, second, third, and fourth jhana, moving through those before it eventually gets to the first stage of enlightenment. And in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment, you would need to eliminate the first three fetters, which are personal existence view, doubt, wrong behavior, and observances. And in order to eliminate those three fetters and all the other fetters, you would have to go through all the four jhanas in order to experience that. There are certain qualities of mind that you're experiencing in the jhanas that are needed in order to fully eliminate the fetters. Let me explain. So in the second jhana, you experience what's called oneness of mind or unification of the mind. Prior to the second jhana, there's a conscious mind that you're aware of and there's a subconscious mind which you're not aware of. Both of these are actually polluted and typically the subconscious mind is more polluted than the conscious mind. If you've ever been standing somewhere having a conversation with somebody and you just blurted something out and after you blurted it out, you were like, why did I say that? That was so stupid of me. That was ignorant. I don't feel that way. Why would I have said something like that? That's your subconscious mind sending something up to your conscious mind and now you blurt it out through your speech because you don't have full awareness of your mind. The mind is polluted in the conscious mind in the unenlightened state and it's more heavily polluted in the subconscious mind that you're unaware of. But by the time you train your mind through all the teachings on the Eightfold Path and you get to the second jhana, you have unification of the mind or oneness of mind. You can see the entire mind. You have awareness of the entire mind. You have mindfulness or awareness of mind of the entire mind. And that's what you would need in order to fully purify it 
of those fetters. You wouldn't be able to eliminate the 10 fetters if you didn't have complete awareness of your mind. Some people think that the subconscious mind is permanent, but if you understand the universal truth of impermanence, you know that the subconscious mind is not permanent. So you can unify the mind by training the mind on the Eightfold Path. You ultimately get to the second jhana where each one of these jhanas, you're going to be experiencing certain mental qualities that you're going to need in order to fully help you to be able to see all the various pollutions in the mind and then purify the mind of those 10 fetters. And that's what the Buddha is explaining to you here. And this particular discourse, I've included the first jhana, but he also talks about the second, third, and fourth jhana in a similar way. And you can go back to the original source using the reference and seeing that detail if you would like. So now he's going to go into talking about these other attainments. These are other attainments that the mind can experience that aren't the jhanas, but they're different attainments that one can experience. And I've explained what these attainments are in this particular chapter. But let's study the words of the Buddha and then we can go through and I will help you to understand any of these that you would like. These particular attainments that we're going to be describing now and the Buddha is going to describe, they're not all experienced by every single person. Some of these attainments are experienced on your way to enlightenment and some people can get to enlightenment without experiencing these particular attainments. So I'm going to read through these using the words of the Buddha and then we can discuss them. Monks, it is said, I say so fetter destruction depends on the sphere of infinite space. And for what reason is this said? By passing wholly beyond perceptions of form, by the passing away of the perceptions of sense reactions, unattentive to the perceptions of the many, he enters and resides in the sphere of infinite space, thinking space is infinite. In the sphere of infinite space, and sees form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, or consciousness, he sees wholly as impermanent objects, as discontentedness, as a disease, as a boil, as a sting, a hurt, an affliction, as something alien, inferior, empty, not the self. He turns his mind away from that and brings it towards the deathless element, enlightenment, with the thought, this is the peace, this is the summit, just this, the stilling of mind activity, the renouncing of all rebirth basis, the destroying of craving, calm, ending the cool, winds to fetter destruction, or snapping the five lower fetters, is born spontaneously and becomes completely cool. And steadfast therein, he wins to fetter destruction, if not wins to fetter destruction, just by reason of that teaching energy, that teaching sweetness, he snaps the five lower fetters and is born spontaneously and being not subject to return from that world, heavenly realm, becomes completely cool there. Monks, suppose an archer or his student were to practice on a straw man or heap of clay. Presently, he would become a long shot a rapid shot, a piercer of great thicknesses. Even so, monks, the monk who, by passing wholly beyond perceptions of form, by passing away of the perceptions of sense reactions, unattentive to the perceptions of the many, he enters and resides in the sphere of infinite space, thinking 
space is infinite. Certainly, monks, it is said, I say fetter destruction depends on the sphere of infinite space, and it is for this reason that it is said. In the case of fetter of destruction, depending on the sphere of infinite consciousness, the sphere of nothingness, the perfectly enlightened one also spoke similarly to that of the sphere of infinite space. Thus, monks, as far as reflection prevails, there is penetrative wisdom. Moreover, monks, those spheres, both the attainment of the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception and the ending of perception and feeling are ones which, I say, ought to be properly made known by those who are in the jhanas, skilled in the attainment, skilled in emerging from there, after they have attained and emerged from there. Okay, let me know what questions you guys have on this. I tend to not teach these other attainments in a lot of detail. They're in the book series and I've described them because there's a lot of detail with each individual, <clears throat> excuse me, with each individual one of these attainments. There's a lot of detail that you need to know about each individual one to know that you've actually experienced these. And I even include in there that there's some people who maybe acquire this particular attainment and others who don't. Or there's one particular attainment that everybody is going to experience. So an example of that is experiencing the observation of your past lives. <clears throat> there are some people who make it to enlightenment who have that experience that they observe their past lives. But there's other people who get to enlightenment who have never observed their past lives. And this is the nature of these particular attainments that some people experience them and some people don't. But there's some that everybody experiences. So I detail that in the book series and you can read about that. So any questions you guys have on any of these, let me know. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can ask your question in Zoom by raising your hand. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I'm gonna move on to the next chapter. This one is chapter 28. This is the Four Noble Truths in the way that the Buddha taught it. The Four Noble Truths that I teach are a summarized version of this to be able to help you learn it very easily and very readily and then put it into practice and start being able to experience the results so that you can independently verify it. The words of the Buddha are very detailed on the Four Noble Truths and it's important for you to learn them in the way that the Buddha taught them as well. The way that I taught them are to help people get started and moving in the right direction, but ultimately you're gonna to need to learn them through the way that the Buddha taught them. During the lifetime of the Buddha, I suspect that things like the five aggregates and other things that he references here were already well known by students so that when he explains this, that the students already understood. So I explained it in a way that students will already understand it today without having any prior knowledge whatsoever. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, he explained it in a way that his students would understand it based on the nature of the world and what people currently understood at that time. So I'm going to read this to you and then I'm going to explain it to you in the way that the Buddha taught it so that you will understand it. If you already understand the Four Noble Truths in the way that I taught them, great, that's wonderful. But now let's investigate this so you can understand it in the way that the Buddha taught them. Here the Buddha explains the Four Noble Truths. Monks, there are these Four Noble Truths. What for? The Noble Truth of Discontentedness. 
the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness, the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness, the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. In what, monks, is the noble truth of discontentedness? It should be said, the five aggregates subject to clinging, that is, the form aggregate subject to clinging, the feeling aggregate subject to clinging, the perception aggregate subject to clinging, the volitional formation aggregate subject to clinging, the consciousness aggregate subject to clinging. This is called the noble truth of discontentedness. So here in this first noble truth, the Buddha is explaining the problem that there's this discontentedness in the mind and the mind is clinging to these five aggregates, which is the body, the feelings, the perceptions, the volitional formations, and the consciousness. And I explain what those five aggregates are down here under the first noble truth, that the form aggregate is the physical body, the feeling aggregate are the painful, the pleasant feelings, the painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant, which are experiences through the six sense bases. That when you have contact through those six sense bases and there's craving in the mind, now there's going to be a feeling that results. Then there's perceptions, which are the belief or opinion based on how things seem to be in the world. This is your beliefs or opinions. It may be true, it may be false, but the mind has certain perceptions in the unenlightened state about how the world seems to be. Then there's volitional formations, which are choices and decisions that are made. And then there's the consciousness itself, the mind. So what the Buddha is explaining in this first noble truth is he's explaining that the mind is clinging to these five aggregates. It's clinging to the physical form. It's clinging to the feelings. It's clinging to your perceptions, your views and opinions of the world. The mind is clinging to your choices and decisions, and it's clinging to the mind itself. An aggregate is oftentimes also referred to as a collection or an element. These are the five elements or the five collections or the five aggregates. This is what describes what a living being is. All living beings are going to have form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, which are choices and decisions, and a consciousness. So here in the first noble truth, he's explaining that you cling to these things in the unenlightened state, and you're going to need to eliminate the clinging to these things. Then he goes on to explaining the cause of the discontentedness. <clears throat> in what monks is the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness? It is this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by excitement and desire, seeking excitement here and there. That is craving for central pleasures, craving for existence, craving for extermination. This is called the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness. So here he's explaining that the cause of discontentedness is that the mind is craving, it's longing, it's yearning, it's wanting to have this renewed existence. And then there's this excitement that the mind is chasing after, those pleasant feelings. This is the central pleasures that the mind is chasing after due to its central desires. The mind in the unenlightened state may be craving existence, meaning to exist in this world. The mind is longing and yearning for existence. Or it might be completely on the other side, which is craving for extermination, craving to die, right? These are two opposite sides. By the time you get to enlightenment, you can just be content in the present moment in this existence without craving it or without craving for extermination. So what's causing this continuous taking up of 
these five aggregates to keep coming into the world over and over and over again is these cravings. That's what's causing you to keep experiencing discontentedness over and over and over again. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness? It is the remainderless fading away, the elimination of the same craving, the giving up and letting go of it, freedom from it, non-reliance on it. This is called the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness. So here the Buddha is explaining the solution. The way that you eliminate discontentedness is to eliminate the cause. The cause is craving, desire, attachment. He explains that in the second noble truth. So the third noble truth is explaining the way to eliminate the discontentedness is to eliminate those cravings. If you can eliminate the cravings, then that's what's going to get you to the elimination of discontentedness. So the giving up and letting go, the freedom of it, the non-reliance on it, that's what's going to get you to the peace and the joy, the elimination of discontentedness. And now the Buddha is going to give you the complete solution. In what, monks, is the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness? It is this noble eightfold path that is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is called the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. These monks are the four noble truths. So here he's explaining that the Eightfold Path is the way to eliminate discontentedness. So he gets to the heart of it in the second and third noble truth, where he's penetrating in and showing you craving, desire, attachment is the cause of discontentedness, and you need to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment in order to eliminate discontentedness. But then he shares it's the Eightfold Path, which is the complete perfect plan to help you to train the mind to eliminate the cravings, desires, attachments. And that's what he's helping you to be guided to learn and understand. That's the core central teaching that is going to lead to your enlightenment. That is your life practice, the Eightfold Path. Then, after he explains the Four Noble Truths, he will then typically share something like this, which is encouraging you and and supporting you and kind of guiding you to make an effort to learn the Four Noble Truths. So therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand. This is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. So you're going to need to apply effort determination, dedication, and diligence to understanding each of these Four Noble Truths, especially the Eightfold Path, because that's the path forward. And the Four Noble Truths is the first step on the Eightfold Path. This is right view. If we go back to the previous chapter where the Buddha was sharing the Eightfold Path, if you look here, he shares what right view is. What right view is having the wisdom of discontentedness, the wisdom of the cause of discontentedness, the wisdom of the elimination of discontentedness, and the way, the wisdom of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. So right view of the Eightfold Path, the very first step, is to deeply understand and practice the Four Noble Truths. So the central teaching is the Eightfold Path where other teachings are plugging into it, like the Four Noble Truths plugs into the Eightfold Path. So let me know what questions you guys have on the Buddha's version of the Four Noble Truths. 
You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, so Mayu Lee is asking a question about the previous chapter. Are you able to elaborate on what Buddha means by sphere of infinite space and the sphere of infinite consciousness? I do have these teachings and I documented it in the book series. I don't have this committed to the memory because it's not something that needs to be readily taught. If you're practicing the Eightfold Path and you're developing your mind, if the mind is going to experience these things, you will experience these attainments. You don't have to do anything special to attain them. The mind will attain them. But what I'll do, Mayuli, is I will go get that text because it's quite extensive to go through all the detail. And I will let you know here in this particular comment where you can find it in the book series so that then you can go find it and then you can read it and understand it. And then if you have any questions on what you've read, then you can let me know because uh, it's better to read it because it's very detailed rather than me teaching it. Okay, I'm not seeing any other questions anywhere. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 29. This is where the Buddha connects the Four Noble Truths in dependent origination. This can be really helpful for you. If you've already studied dependent origination in volume five, chapter 14, which is what I teach as part of this Pali Canon and English study group, and now you start to understand the Four Noble Truths, you can now plug in dependent origination to be able to see how this connects with the Four Noble Truths. So here I'll read it to you and then I'll help you to understand it. These are the words of the Buddha. In what, monks, is the noble truth of discontentedness? Birth is discontentedness. Aging, sickness, death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair are discontentedness. Not to get what one desires is discontentedness. In short, the five aggregates based on clinging are discontentedness. So the Buddha is explaining the same thing that he explained in the Four Noble Truths, that the five aggregates clinging to these is going to produce discontentedness. But now he's going into more detail and explaining as long as you're born, you're going to experience discontentedness because the craving desire attachment is the fuel that causes rebirth. So if you have craving desire attachment at the time of death, there's going to be a new birth. And when there's birth, then craving and ignorance exists in the mind and the mind's going to ultimately experience this sickness, aging, and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. You're going to experience that until you get to enlightenment. So you need to do that work in order to get to enlightenment. And now the Buddha is connecting the second noble truth to dependent origination. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the arising of discontentedness? So now, instead of just explaining to you that it's craving, desire, attachment that leads to discontentedness, he's going to give you the step-by-step -step in showing you exactly what leads to discontentedness. Now he's going to show you the detail, the work. If you've ever had a math teacher that you would just write the answer to the problem, and they would say, well, show me your work. Show me how you got to that answer. In the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha is just showing you the answer, but now he's going to show you the work, the detail of exactly what leads to your discontentedness and the causes. It's not just craving that is causing the discontentedness. That's the penetrative wisdom that it is craving, desire, attachment that's producing the discontentedness. But there's other causes and conditions that allow the craving to continue to persist. And if it wasn't for these other causes and conditions, craving wouldn't continue. 
So here the Buddha is showing you his work. Conditioned by ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, the volitional formations, choices and decisions come to be. Conditioned by the volitional activities, consciousness. Conditioned by consciousness, name and form. Conditioned by name and form, the six sense bases. Conditioned by the six sense bases, contact. Conditioned by contact, feeling. Conditioned by feeling, craving. Conditioned by craving, clinging. Conditioned by clinging, existence. Conditioned by existence, birth. Conditioned by birth, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to pass. This is the arising of the whole mass of discontentedness. This, monks, is called the noble truth of the arising of discontentedness. So here, craving is what you learn in the Four Noble Truths. And then you go deeper into a teaching like dependent origination to see all the causes and conditions that are leading to craving. Namely, this ignorance or unknowing of true reality. That's why your ultimate goal is to cultivate wisdom. You're not believing any teachings on the path to enlightenment. You're learning, reflecting, independently verifying your practicing because wisdom is the exact opposite of ignorance. If you can get to wisdom, you can completely unravel and dismantle all the causes and conditions that are leading to discontentedness and that are leading to continuous rebirth. Because with ignorance in the mind, then you're going to make choices and decisions that are based in that unknowing of true reality or that confusion or that ignorance. You're going to be producing unwise decisions that then produces unwholesome karma. And as long as you're producing unwholesome karma, you're going to need to experience that either in this life or some future life. And now with those volitional formations or volitional activities, now there's going to be a new consciousness that is formed. When that new consciousness is formed and created, then it's going to take up a name and form. What name and form is, is this is the physical body. The Buddha goes into detail in dependent origination explaining what name and form is, but you can essentially think about it as the physical body. This is the mind and the physical body coming together to now form an actual being. And now when that being is formed, there's going to be these six sense bases, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the body, and the mind itself. There's now these six sense bases that are formed and created. And then when you experience contact through those six sense bases, you will then experience either pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant. The first time you experienced a pleasant feeling based on contact, the mind really enjoyed that pleasant feeling. And now the mind starts forming craving where the mind is longing and yearning for those pleasant feelings. And then the mind starts clinging to all of these things, wanting this permanence. Then because of that clinging, you experience continued existence over and over and over again. So there's birth that is experienced. And once there's birth, then there's going to be aging and death. That's the impermanent nature that you can't stay alive permanently. Then if there's birth, aging and death, along with that, you're going to experience sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure and despair. This is how all of this discontentedness in this continuous rebirth is occurring. It's because of ignorance that craving, desire, attachment continues in the mind. And then you experience the discontentedness because of that. 
So the way to unravel all of this is to be able to cultivate wisdom. Because if this condition of ignorance is eradicated from the mind, then you unravel and dismantle this whole entire sequence of events. That when this cause or condition of ignorance doesn't exist, then when you replace that with wisdom, now you will make choices and decisions based on wisdom. And you will create wholesome gamma or wholesome results. And the causes and conditions for consciousness to continue in the world no longer exist. You will no longer take on a name and form. You will no longer pick up a physical body. And you will no longer develop the six sense bases. There will no longer be contact through those six sense bases. So therefore you won't experience the discontentedness because you've extinguished birth. There won't be any cravings in the mind. There won't be any clinging. There will no longer be existence. There will no longer be birth. So therefore you won't experience aging and death, neither sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, or despair. So you will have completely dismantle this by fully cultivating wisdom. So that's how discontentedness arises. Then the Buddha is explaining in the third noble truth, the elimination. So now he's going to show you the dismantling of dependent origination. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness? From the complete fading out and ending of ignorance, a knowing of true reality, comes the ending of volitional formations, choices, and decisions. This is what I was just sharing with you. From the ending of volitional formations, the ending of consciousness. From the ending of consciousness, the ending of name and form. From the ending of name and form, the ending of the six sense bases. The ending of the six sense bases, the ending of contact. From the ending of contact, the ending of feeling. From the ending of feeling, the ending of craving. From the ending of craving, the ending of clinging. From the ending of clinging, the ending of existence. From the ending of existence, the ending of birth. From the ending of birth, aging and death. Sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure and despair comes to the ending of this whole mass of discontentedness. This, monks, is called the elimination of discontentedness. So I've already explained that to you through the previous text. Now the fourth noble truth. This is the solution. In what, monks, is the noble truth of the practice that leads to the elimination of discontentedness? It is just this noble eightfold path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is called the noble truth of the practice that leads to the elimination of discontentedness. So that's the complete perfect plan that is going to awaken the mind to enlightenment. When you learn each one of these steps and you dial them in closer and closer, this is where the mind becomes fully awake and having eliminated all discontentedness. Because by making decisions through the Eightfold Path, you're making wise decisions. You're no longer making ignorant decisions or you're no longer having that unknowing of true reality or confusion or misunderstanding. So when you fully are making decisions through the Eightfold Path and you do that for an extended period of time, you're going to be producing more and more wise decisions that then creates more and more wholesome gamma. I talk about this like in the past when we lack the wisdom of the Eightfold Path, we are putting mud into the garden hose. 
And then when you learn the Eightfold Path, it's like hooking up the garden hose to a faucet and now opening that faucet and putting clean water through the garden hose. And more and more, you spit out all this dirty water or you spit out and extinguish all this unwholesome gamma that has been created due to the lack of wisdom from the past. And now when you extinguish all those unwise decisions by making wise decisions through the Eightfold Path, for an extended period of time, you'll eventually get to the point where you've eliminated all the pollution of the mind, and now the mind will be peaceful and joyful. You will have extinguished all your unwholesome gamma through training the mind and through making only wise decisions in the world. And now you'll only experience wholesome results coming back to you because you're no longer making unwise decisions. So let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. This is the Four Noble Truths independent origination being put together so you can see the real detail and the real work of what leads to your discontentedness and the actual solution. Okay, Mayuli is asking a question here. With ignorance as condition, although we cultivate wisdoms through reading, understanding, reflecting, and practicing the sutta, we will need to fully practice the Eightfold Path in order to eliminate ignorance. Is that correct? Yes, 100%. That you can intellectually know something about the teachings of the Buddha, but if you haven't implemented it in practice, there's still ignorance there. So that's why when I was talking about like the Dhammapada, the academics or the historians or the scholars or researchers or historians, they can academically and intellectually study the teachings of the Buddha and cultivate a certain amount of wisdom, but they haven't fully transformed their mind to get to complete wisdom and complete er eradication of ignorance because they're not practicing the teachings. So that's why when they're writing scholarly works about the teachings of the Buddha, it's not quite clear. It's not direct. It's not penetrating. It's not independently verifiable the way that the Buddha taught, who was fully awake and had full wisdom about the path to enlightenment. So in order to get to enlightenment, in order to eradicate and eliminate ignorance, you need to fully cultivate wisdom, which is the Eightfold Path. That's the core central teaching. And then remember, there's other teachings that plug into it. So you're going to need to know those teachings as well. And that's why you learn in the foundational program of the group learning program. And then you learn in a program like this to fill out all the other teachings that need to plug into the Eightfold Path. Okay. So it looks like that's all the questions here. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 30. This is the last one for today. Here, this one is titled, A Stream Enter is Worth More Than Being a Wheel-Turning Monarch. So let me explain to you what a wheel-turning monarch is, and then I will read this chapter for you. A wheel-turning monarch is an individual who is a ruler during the lifetime of the Buddha, who is maybe a king or a queen who's ruling over a population and they're making decisions based on the teachings of the Buddha. A stream enter is somebody who's gotten to the first stage of enlightenment. They've eliminated the first three fetters and they've acquired other wisdom as well, but they've eliminated these first three fetters. So now the Buddha is going to explain to you how someone who's in the first stage of enlightenment is more beneficial to the world than this wheel-turning monarch who is rolling over a population of people and making decisions based in the teachings of the Buddha. Monks, although a wheel-turning monarch, having exercised supreme sovereign rulership 
over the four continents with the breakup of the body after death is reborn in a good destination in a heavenly world in the company of heavenly beings of the heavenly realm and therein the nananda grove accompanied by an entourage of heavenly nymphs he enjoys himself supplied and endowed with the five cords of heavenly sensual pleasure still as he does not possess four things he is not freed from hell the animal realm and the realm of afflicted spirits not freed from the plane of misery the bad destinations the nether world although monks a noble disciple maintains himself by lumps of alms food and wears rag robes still as he possesses four things he is freed from hell the animal realm and the realm of afflicted spirits freed from the plane of misery the bad destinations the nether world what are the four here monks the noble disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the buddha thus that the tagata is an arahant perfectly enlightened accomplished in true wisdom and conduct fortunate knower of the worlds unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed teacher of heavenly beings and humans the enlightened one the fortunate one he possesses confirmed confidence in the teachings thus the teachings are well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one directly visible immediate inviting one to come and see applicable to be personally experienced by the wise he possesses confirmed confidence in the community thus the perfectly enlightened one's disciples is practicing the wholesome way practicing the straight way practicing the true way practicing the proper way that is the four pairs of persons the eight types of individuals this community of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples is worthy of gifts worthy of hospitality worthy of offerings worthy of respectful salutation the unsurpassed field of merit for the world four he possesses the virtues moral conduct dear to the noble ones unbroken untorn unblemished unblotched liberating praised by the wise not misunderstood in leading to concentration he possesses these four things in monks between the obtaining of sovereignty over the four continents and the obtaining of the four things the obtaining of sovereignty over the four continents is not worth a 16 part of the obtaining of the four things so here let me walk you through this discourse to help you understand what the buddha is sharing here so as i mentioned this wheel turning monarch is someone who's a ruler and making decisions through the teachings of the buddha they know a certain amount of wisdom but they don't have these four things that a stream enterer is going to have and the buddha is saying that this individual they're going to be reborn if they die into the heavenly world and they're going to be enjoying the central pleasures um, so okay they're reborn into the heavenly world that's fine but that's not an ideal existence because the individual does not yet possess the four things that the buddha is describing they're not yet freed from the lower destinations they're not freed from hell the animal realm or the afflicted spirits so even though this being can be reborn into the heavenly realm they're not freed from the lower realms you can move from the heavenly realm down into the lower realms and this is an example of someone who's done that could potentially do that because they don't have these four things that a stream enterer or someone in the first stage of enlightenment would have an individual who's a stream enterer they're freed from these 
lower realms. They're freed from hell, animal realm, or afflicted spirits. They'll never again be reborn into the lower realms. If they die in the first stage of enlightenment, they'll come back into the human realm. Or if they get to the third stage of enlightenment, they will be reborn into the heavenly realm and they will attain enlightenment from the heavenly realm. So heavenly beings can attain enlightenment, but oftentimes they don't because they're complacent. So if an individual is just reborn into the heavenly realm, they're not yet freed from the lower realms. But if someone gets into the third stage of enlightenment and is reborn into the heavenly realm, they're actually free from the lower realms. They will experience enlightenment in that existence in the heavenly realm. <clears throat> but that's not ideal. That's not what you're interested in. What you would like to do is get to enlightenment in this life. Get to the fourth stage of enlightenment in this life. So you're not reborn into any of these realms. So here, these are four qualities that an individual would need to cultivate, among other things, in order to experience the first stage of enlightenment. They would need to have confidence in the Buddha. They would need to have confidence in his teachings. They would need to have confidence in the community. And they would need to have this virtuous moral conduct. Essentially, what the Buddha is talking about here is someone who has eliminated doubt and somebody who's eliminated wrong behavior and observances, those two fetters. But of course, this isn't the only thing that you need in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment, but this is just one aspect of it. By having confirmed confidence in the Buddha, you would gain that on your way to the first stage of enlightenment. Because as you're experiencing the jhanas and you're seeing the improved quality of mind, before you even get to the first stage of enlightenment, you will experience a reduction of discontentedness. By the time you get to the first stage of enlightenment, there'll be a significant reduction of discontentedness and you will have eliminated all your doubt that you will know that the Buddha lived, that he was enlightened because here you are learning his teachings and it's improving the condition of your mind and your life, that you will have this confidence in the Buddha. Then you will have this confidence in the teachings that they are indeed leading to your enlightenment. You're not enlightened yet at this point, but you have confidence in his teachings and you have confidence in the community that you're part of, that you have confidence in your other members of the community, your teacher and the people that are around you supporting you because you couldn't just go off by yourself and get to enlightenment because you're not a Buddha. You're going to need to be part of a community and a community that's practicing the straight way or practicing the wholesome way or practicing the true way. In this way, individuals would be practicing where they're supportive and they're encouraging of their fellow community members. We're not degrading each other. We're not putting each other down. We're not diminishing each other. We're not comparing ourselves to try to determine who's more enlightened than the other. Everybody's equal. And we're just supporting and encouraging each other to continue on the path to enlightenment. That would be practicing the wholesome way, the straight way, the true way, the proper way, the actual teachings that lead to enlightenment, the eightfold path. And part of that is to practice the moral conduct. And by eliminating the unwholesome moral conduct and now producing wiser and wiser decisions around your wholesome moral conduct, you will experience wholesome results coming back to you. When your mind's confused, when you're having misunderstandings, when you're not sure about the moral conduct that you should have in any one particular situation, your mind will be muddled and confused. But when you're practicing and you can see clearly the wholesome moral conduct from the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings the Buddha explains and shares with you, 
you won't misunderstand these teachings because you'll be able to independently verify them for yourself through your own direct experience. And having gained that clarity and having eliminated a certain amount of ignorance and the wrong behavior and observances, it will produce more concentration in your mind because by eliminating more and more pollution, you'll see more and more focus, concentration, clarity of mind, and deep memory coming into the mind. And part of that is to improve your moral conduct. If you are meditating for 23 hours a day, but you went outside and you were harsh and bitter and hostile with people, your mind's going to be cluttered. You're going to have a muddled mind. You're not going to have a peaceful and joyful mind and a peaceful and joyful life. So you can't meditate your way to enlightenment. You need meditation, but you need to improve your moral conduct. And through learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings around moral conduct, you'll become very clear of what is the moral conduct that leads to wholesome results in your life because you'll be able to see it through your own direct experience of you'll make a decision and then you'll observe the results. You'll either experience wholesome results or unwholesome results. That's the gamma coming back to you. The gamma is the most unbiased teacher that you'll ever find. So when you're making decisions in your life, if you can observe the results that you experience from that decision, then you will know whether you're experiencing wholesome gamma or unwholesome gamma. And more and more, you can observe the wise decisions that's going to produce wholesome gamma and just keep doing those things more and more readily. And that's what will produce the elimination of unwholesome gamma because you're no longer making unwise decisions. You're only making wise decisions. So you're going to need to clean up your moral conduct. And the Buddha would focus people on this very early in their practice. So right speech, right action, and right livelihood is all are all things that you would like to clean up. And all of that is emanating from right view and right intention. You need to cultivate that in order to produce the moral conduct of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So let me know if you guys have any questions on this particular chapter because the Buddha is explaining that this first stage of enlightenment of a stream enter is you know, essentially more beneficial in the world than this will turning monarch because this stream enter has a certain amount of wisdom that can then help other people. And this would help the world to become a more peaceful, loving, and kind place. Any questions on this chapter? Okay, looks like Francis has a question. Go ahead, sir. Okay, I came across this uh, sentence uh, pertaining to uh, the context of the stream enterer. Uh, what is the meaning of the seer and the doer of the deathless? So this, uh, to me, is very confusing. Could you just share your uh, guidance on this one or thoughts on this one? Yeah, can we look at that privately, Francis? Because since it's not here in this particular discourse, I would like to look at the entire discourse that you're looking at, and then I can give you better details on that discourse. Uh, what do you mean? Uh, can we talk maybe uh, out in class and then if you'd like to stay in Zoom, okay, okay, sure. if you'd like to stay in okay, Zoom, we can talk now or we can talk sometime in the future. Sometime in the future. I will just uh, go back to the paragraph that I came across in the, in the context of the suttas and all that, then we can talk about it later. No problem. Okay. Sure. And if you'd like to send me the reference to the discourse, yeah. then I can look at it and then I can uh, talk privately through messenger even if you'd like and I can explain it to you there or we can get on zoom and I can help you that way uh, one question that came to me was uh, 
even relating to your uh, class in January 2nd, uh, is there a one-day class on the normal A4 path or is it a five days program? The January 1st through January 5th, this is a foundation in the Path to Enlightenment course. It's Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Thai time. And the part that we're going to live stream is the Monday through Thursday. The fifth day here in Chiang Mai, we go out on a tour and I tour students around to various temples and teach them through the artwork, architecture, and the symbolism of the temples. But Monday through Friday or Monday through Thursday, I'm going to be live streaming that. And you can also log in through Zoom where you can learn the foundational teachings. You can see the content that I'm going to be teaching in the that course on our website. I detail there on the classes, courses, and retreats exactly what I'm going to be teaching in that course. So if let's say I can't come uh, physically, so I follow over Zoom is uh, from 9 to uh, morning to about 3 to 5 in the afternoon? It's from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And we're going to be taking breaks and a lunch break as well. And it's going to be mm -hmm. in Zoom and it's going to be live streamed as well. So the January course will be live streamed so you can watch the recordings of that. But now going forward, all the courses that I teach here in Chiang Mai at the temple, I'm going to have Zoom on. So any of the classes that I'm teaching here, you'll be able to uh, log into Zoom and watch and participate in as well. So even like this week on Monday, I'm starting a course called Harmony and Relationships. And you could even attend that one or any bits and parts of it that you would like to attend. Okay, thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Based on the support that you guys have been providing, I've been able to offer this now to be able to uh, allow students to log in and participate in the classes, courses, and retreats at the temple, and then those that I do from here at, at home as well. Okay, let me just check if there's any more questions. I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So what I'll do is just in class by thanking all of you guys for deciding today is a day you'd like to learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha and invite you to come back and learn in future classes, courses, and retreats because we have the Sunday, Wednesday, and Saturday classes that are continuous and ongoing. And then we have classes throughout the month and throughout the year that are courses and retreats that you can attend either here in Chiang Mai or you can attend online through Zoom. Or in some cases, we're actually live streaming them as well and you can access them as recordings. So thank you all for joining for today's class. If you would like to attend a future class, the Pali Canon English Study Group, we're going to be studying chapters 31 through 40 in our next class. And tomorrow in the group learning program, I'm going to be in volume one, chapter 12, which is titled Craving is the Problem. What is the solution? And I'm going to be teaching you that particular chapter by helping you to learn the three universal truths and the four noble truths. And then sharing with you specific things that can actually be cravings, desires, attachments that the mind can cling to. And then I'll be using those examples to help you be able to identify them. When we talk about chapter 13 a week from now, then I'll teach you how to go in and surgically remove these. And then of course on Wednesday, we'll be doing guided breathing mindfulness meditation together. So perhaps I'll see you guys in one of these future courses. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.